The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Our Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you again for your mercies, for your love to us, for this beautiful day, and for the many other reminders that uh, you care for your people. We thank you for the opportunity that you grant to us to uh, study your word. We pray for wisdom, for your direction, that we may be faithful to put into practice the things that you will teach us. Uh, we ask these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Okay, what I want to do is spend just a few minutes walking you through the syllabus. Make sure that you're sitting next to somebody who has one. Uh, and as I said, I, I'll have the extras tomorrow. <clears throat> as you can see, uh, I have, first of all, listed my office hours at the top. Uh, Mondays from 9.30 to 10.30 and Tuesdays uh, also 9.30 to 10.30 and from 4 to 4.30. Um, these times are for you. Uh, I find that most students, for some reason, they see it's a big class and are a little bit worried about um, taking my time. Um, but these times are precisely for that, so you needn't feel, you know, uh, like you're bothering me if you come during these times. If, uh, if you have a conflict, just let me know ahead of time and we can, um, we can find another slot. That, that really wouldn't, uh, won't be a problem. My office is down in the basement of the library. As you go down the, st the steps, you turn to your right. Uh, there's a restroom there. My office is between the restroom and the trash room. Um, <laughs> but uh, you see my name, and, and um, the, the, it's also the Westminster Journal office. So, uh, so please feel free to come uh, if you need to. And even if you don't need to, uh, want to talk about the Dolphins' wins? It's a good year. Two wins in a row, and, uh, and Agassiz won two, and, and Frazier won an Emmy, all that. Good, good year. Anyway, <clears throat> um, then I have just a brief summary of the contents of the course, and then the course requirements that I will talk about in more detail in just a minute. On the second page, I want you to notice uh, the course bibliography that begins about the middle of the page and goes on to the next one. What course bibliography means is that this is your main uh, reading list. The assignments that are listed later in the syllabus are key to this list. Uh, so that I will just have an abbreviation later on. I'll show you in a moment. Uh, and all these books are in reserve. And uh, when there's an assignment from one of them, you can, you can go back to this list to see more information about the book and just go ahead and, um, and get a copy on, on reserve. Uh, then at the bottom of page three begins the, the lecture notes. It's, not, it's an outline of the course material. Notice, however, that um, right there at the bottom, orientation, that's what we're going to start talking about in a few minutes, there's a reading, a Gaffin 143 to 51 
compare Roberts to Toit, uh, pages 3 to 74. Now, for each uh, major heading of, of the uh, syllabus, you will find a reading assignment like that, which sends you back to the main bibliography. Now, in this case, I made a mistake, the last one this semester. Um, if you go to Gaffin in the list, you will find that there are two articles by Gaffin. What happened is that I added a second one and I forgot to make the, uh, the modification in, in the syllabus. In this particular case, it happens to be the first article that plays an importance of introduction uh, to the New Testament. It's a short article. Uh, so in connection with this particular section orientation, I'm asking you to read that brief article by Gaffin. And then the uh, comment in parentheses is just a recommendation. If you're interested in this uh, and you have extra time or whatever, uh, this would be a good thing to read in addition, the, uh, the volume by Roberts and the Toit. And then uh, if you go on to the next page, page four, uh, there is some additional bibliography. This is not, there's no requirement at all when I give you an additional bibliography. One of our main textbooks for the course is by Edward Lowe's The New Testament Environment. He has a good bibliography in the back, but it's a little dated. And so when I give you an additional bibliography, it is intended as a supplement to what you have in Lowe's. And I've also given you the call numbers in the library for you to uh, you know, take a look at them if you wish. These books, um, depending on your level of interest or whatever, it may not be a bad idea to to go and at least just take a look at them. Um, familiarize yourself with the title because maybe in the future you may have some kind of, uh, of a project and you find that you need to do, do a little bit of additional research and if you have some familiarity with what these major reference works are like, it can really help. And uh, if you just see them in you know, a name, it just means nothing. But if you actually go out there to the stacks and see what it looks like and take it out and make sure you smell it, that's very important if you really want to uh, retain uh, the memory of it, uh, that it just wouldn't be a bad idea. And so the rest of the syllabus follows the same basic uh, pattern. For example, on that same page, uh, under Seleucid Dominance, you have there a reading uh, from Loza, pages 11 to 30, and from Barrett, 135 to 43. Uh, those are the two main books that you're going to be reading from uh, during the first month of the course. Uh, the book by Loza is simply a, um, a history of the period just before the New Testament, during the New Testament, and so on. Uh, also gives a, a very clear summary of uh, cultural features. Uh, whereas the book by Barrett, the New Testament background, selected documents, you have uh, an addition of some of the more important writings that were produced during that time and which uh, a historian needs to be able to write this kind of a book. You see, this is what we call uh, primary documents, this is a secondary document. Uh, this guy gives you a lot of information. Where did he get it from? From this, you see. And uh, if you just want everything secondhand, just read this. If you want things firsthand, you do this, you see. Now, this reading, the reason we have this book is that this reading 
is not always easy. If you're not familiar with that kind of writing, it, it's a little, you know, you can't quite get into it as much as you might want to. It's a little bit difficult to synthesize what you're reading. Uh, and so I give you both. And uh, it's very important, I think, for you to get a good taste of this kind of material. Um, you do not have to read every single thing that I'm asking you to read. In fact, I prefer that you read this material, even if you don't finish it reading it, finish reading it, uh, that you read it, um, give it enough time to let it flow, you know, get, get to enjoy it as much as possible. It's not always easy to enjoy this reading. But if you're able to get a little bit of a sense for what's in here, it gives you a much greater sense of what a historical document is all about. When we move into the New Testament, the New Testament, whatever else it is, and we know that it's a lot more, but it is a set of historical documents. We tend to read the New Testament, I think the tendency for most of us is to kind of isolate the New Testament from its historical origin. We know it, it is God's word, um, we read it in church, and uh, we, we lose sight of the fact that it was written by real people a long time ago. And um, if you learn to read these other documents written about the same time, I think it gives you a new perspective on reading the New Testament, also as a historical document. And uh, I think it can be of real help. I'll say a little bit more about that in, in a moment. So here's your main source of information for the next three weeks or so, even more than my lectures, by the way. Um, I, I don't try to give you every bit of information, and some may get garbled. Uh, not everything that I tell you is absolutely infallible. So you can always go back here and check things out. I'm, I'm primarily interested in giving you a little bit of perspective and summarizing some of the more important material and so on. Uh, the exam click, uh, will be based primarily on this book alongside of the lecture material. And, and I'll say a little bit more about that. Uh, I will not take any questions straight out of this book so that theoretically you could totally forget about this book and still get every answer in the exam. Um, I think if you read this book, it gives you more breadth and depth uh, gives you better understanding of the material, and so it should make it easier to go through the exam. But more important than that, it gives you a much better uh, sense of what is going on. And uh, I hope you will take this uh, reading seriously, just to help you, give you some encouragement. I do have a question in the exam asking you how much did you read? And even though that question is not graded as such, uh, when, when I come to the end of the semester and have to give you your final grade and you're kind of in a borderline situation, that could influence me somewhat. So, uh, so do take it seriously. Um, I'll say more about this in, in just a little while, but uh, let's go through the first couple of pages of the syllabus in more detail. If you do not have a copy of the syllabus right now, I encourage you to jot down some of this information, and then when you get the syllabus tomorrow, you can... Uh, uh, tie things together, but um, I want to make sure that you understand as clearly as possible what what is going on in the course. The um, outline 
that I have given you here on, on, on uh, page one with the tentative dates, they're, they're very tentative dates, and it simply gives you a little bit of a, of an, a, um, you know, a sense of how much time we're going to be spending on each of these uh, uh, subjects. You see that there are two major uh, sections of the course, one dealing with the background to the New Testament and one dealing with, with the transmission of the New Testament, uh, textual criticism primarily, also some time we'll be spending on, on canon. You will notice that um, there's an exam listed there for October 11th. That's sort of our midterm exam. Uh, jot that information down. Uh, it's important for you to be here. In a, in, a, in a large class like this, I have less flexibility in allowing people to you know, modify uh, the, uh, the coursework. So, so please uh, keep that in mind. Also, so that you know what's going to be happening at the end of the semester, at the very end of the outline, you will notice under theological reflection, I have given uh, November 21st and 22nd for this material. And then I have a little problem. Um, the following week, which would be what, 20, uh, 29th and 30th of, of November, I probably will not be here. I'll try to be here for Tuesday the 30th, but I, I don't know if I'll, I'll get back in time for class. And I'm a little bit concerned about that. And so in parentheses, I have December 1st or 2nd. Now that's Thursday or Friday, which we're not supposed to meet. Uh, but I'm, I'm telling you at this point that there's a possibility that if we find that we need an additional hour or whatever, I may try to uh, set up a, uh, a special time on, on that last um, day or so of the, of the semester uh, to make sure that you have an opportunity to ask questions or review the material or whatever. We'll just see how things uh, go on. But, but that's the reason for the question mark and the dates of December 1st and 2nd. Now, uh, course requirements. Uh, basic reading assignments are listed under the appropriate headings in the lecture notes. I've already mentioned that to you. All students are expected to complete these readings, except for the items in parentheses, which are optional. And you will be asked to report in your reading later on. Then, your grade will be based primarily on two exams. The first one scheduled for October 11. will cover all of part one, that's origins. Also, the first section of part two, language and translation. All right? Is that clear? Uh, and that exam on October 11th will be worth 25% of your grade. The second exam will be during finals. We'll cover the rest of the material, textual criticism and canon. Uh, that exam will be worth one half of your grade. Now, that, ex that final exam is not uh, cumulative. Uh, after the exam on October 11th, you can safely forget everything you learned up to that point because you will not be examined on that again. But uh, the finals uh, exam will cover the, uh, the uh, second part of most of the second part of the uh, course material. And it's a little bit more challenging. Um, and that's why I, um, I give it 50% uh, weight. 
These exams are largely objective in char character, mainly multiple choice and uh, matching. Uh, if you go to the circulation desk in the library, you will find a copy of a previous exam, both for the midterm and for the final. And uh, the, the idea behind that is to give you some sense of, of what the exam will be like. Um, now, that's the only exam that you are permitted to look at. Occasionally, there are some exams from previous years that are floating around. And you need to understand that I have only a limited number of multiple choice questions that can be asked. And uh, if you get a hold of a previous exam, that is illicit and could get you into deep trouble. So uh, there's the one exam in the circulation desk. You can spend as much time as you want on that one, uh, and, um, but, but nothing else. Now, because these exams are objective in character, so-called, in other words, I'm, I'm basically asking you, you know, have you learned a basic amount of information? Uh, you will also have two written assignments, which are really intended to, to show me that, that you can also think a little bit. The uh, first one is a brief paper, no more than 700 words, and that's due the 4th of October. This assignment consists of a critical review of Vanderkam, The Dead Sea Scrolls Today. Now, this book just came out this uh, year, just about three or four months ago. It's a superb uh, treatment of the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of the controversies that have been going on, descriptions of the material. It's very, very well done. And uh, with, with the exception of chapter 5, which deals more with Old Testament kinds of questions, uh, you're supposed to read this and write a, a solid book review by October 1st, uh, 4th. Um, I want you, uh, insofar as this may be possible, for you to try to integrate into that little book review, review some of the reading you have done in Barrett, because Barrett, uh, as you will see, gives you some selections from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I would like for you, uh, as you read Barrett, uh, to you know, pay attention to some of the more interesting material there. And then when you write your book review of Vanderkam, you may be able to perhaps illustrate uh, what you're saying uh, by just making a brief reference to, you know, there's something like this also in Barrett page such and such, uh, that would be very nice. Now, some of you are maybe haven't read very many book reviews, and, and you may not be sure what I'm after here. In the circulation desk also, I have a copy of a book review that I wrote some years ago, uh, just to give you an idea of the sort of thing that I'm looking for. But you can go to any journal in the library, look at book reviews and see the kinds of things that people normally do. It's a critical book review, and by that I mean that I don't want a book report in the sense of summarizing what the book is saying. I have read the book. I know what it says. I am more interested in what you think about the book, which means that you may want to summarize a little bit at the beginning. Uh, it'd be a good idea, for example, for you to, um, to have in mind um, let's suppose that you're the only one who's read this book in this class and you want to write this book review for your peers in this class. 
That's the kind of audience that I would like for you to have in mind. Uh, give them enough information about the book that the reader gets some idea of what's going on, what you think about it, is it really worthwhile or not, and, and you try to be specific. Uh, I mentioned here that um, uh, you, sh you should be concise. I am, I am a real nitpicker about the word limit. So if it looks to me that you're going beyond the word limit, I, am, I will count words. And uh, I will not take into account anything that you've written past the 700-word limit. Um, be concrete. Give specific examples as much as possible. You know, actual page numbers, you know, a brief quotation. Don't fill the review with long quotations. That doesn't work. Uh, be clear in your writing. Be careful. Uh, this should be a, a nicely done paper. It's very brief, two or three pages, that's all. And uh, I just want to see that, that you've been thinking through the issues and, and you can express uh, your ideas about it. The second written assignment will be an exercise in textual criticism, which I cannot describe yet. In fact, I will not be able to tell you much about it until about a week before it's due because we will have to go through the whole process of how, how, do you, how do you evaluate variations among the manuscripts. And um, you don't need to worry about it. It's also very brief, two pages limit. Uh, and it involves a little bit of research, but uh, I am less interested in how much research you do than in trying to see whether you have actually um, understood the concepts that we will have covered by then. That, that's to November 12th, so you don't have to worry about that. <clears throat> These two papers, which must be typewritten and submitted on time, are equally weighted and account for the final 25% of your grade. So you have your midterm is 25%, the two papers together, 25%, and the final exam, 50%. And when you uh, submit a paper, make sure that you make this, uh, you know, write out this business about you understand what plagiarism is all about and you haven't done it. Please understand that a grade of A indicates exceptional achievement among one's peers and so by definition only a few students are likely to receive such a grade. My method of evaluation aims at indicating to each of you as accurately as possible how you have done in comparison with the rest of the class. That means all the grading is done on the curve, which you love, don't you? Keep in mind that a grade of C indicates satisfactory accomplishment and therefore successful completion of the course. Nothing to be ashamed of. And um, I don't know how to impress upon you uh, this. Um, don't ruin your stay in seminary thinking that um, if you get, you know, a B, that alone a C, you're ruined for life. Uh, I got a D here when I was a seminary student for a course, and they allowed me back in. So um, it's not a total disaster. And you need also to understand, maybe you already realize this, you probably do, but you need to know that our faculty and most people elsewhere understand this, that grades are not a really accurate description of uh, you know how people have learned and how much they know and how successful they can be and um, 
you needn't be overly concerned about uh, about your grades. Enjoy this stuff. Um, learn it, and uh, if you get good grades, fine. I mean, I think you should try to get good grades. Don't don't misunderstand me, but uh, don't, don't don't let it consume you. It's just not worth it. Um, the course bibliography. Notice that there are a few items here that have a little bullet, like the first one is Barrett. Um, these items are the required textbooks. Now, what I mean by required textbooks is this. There's a large class. I cannot depend on the copies on reserve because then it'd be a disaster. And so it's really very important that you have your own copies of these books. Now, I try very hard to choose paper bags so that they're inexpensive, and also books that I think will be useful to you beyond this course. So you, you needn't feel like you're wasting your money. I, th I think uh, you will find them useful even uh, uh, you know, a year, two, three years from now. So uh, for the time being, you only need to worry about these two books, Barrett and Loza, because you have assignments in them right away. Fairly soon, you will need the book by Vanderkam. And then beyond that, primarily the book by Metzger on the text of the New Testament. Um, there are a couple of things that I have written so that uh, you see them there in Biblical Greek and textual criticism. Uh, those will be coming up uh, later in the course. Any questions so far? Totally confused or... Uh, yeah. It, the book review uh, is your opportunity to do what you're interested in doing. So that I, I haven't circumscribed the um, the areas that you may want to emphasize in, in, the, uh, in the actual writing of the review. Uh, to have comments or criticisms of a theological nature is perfectly appropriate. However, uh, you know, your book review should be fair to the book. And this book is not a book on theology. Now, it does have certain assumptions of a theological nature. And I think it would be perfectly appropriate for you to have maybe a paragraph or a couple of sentences or whatever if, if there's a problem in that area. But make sure that in, in describing and uh, critiquing the book that you're fair to its character, what, it, what he's intending to do. And, um, but, but you can certainly emphasize whatever you, know, you find interesting or, or you think you ought to uh, uh, point out. Anything else? What I'm planning to do, uh, maybe not tomorrow, since some of you still don't have the syllabus, but after everybody has the syllabus by tomorrow, what I would really like for you to do is uh, in, the, uh, in the next few days to, uh, to go over these first couple of pages carefully so that if you have any additional questions next Monday, I can give you a chance to ask them. Uh, let me uh, tell you a couple of things about um, 
what I think may be the best way for you to go about um, studying for the course and so on, at, at least at this stage uh, of the game. Um, there's one argument that says it's better for you to read the reading assignments prior to the lecture because then you're kind of warmed up to the subject and when I start talking about it you have something to link things with and you can get more out of the of the lecture. There's the other philosophy that says no, uh, it's much more efficient to see what uh, the instructor thinks about it and then when you do the reading you can be more selective you see about what you read and where you put your emphasis and so on. Um, besides it helps you to review what you've heard in class before this stuff begins to vanish from your uh, whatever. Um, there's merit to both arguments. So much merit, in fact, that I strongly suggest you do both. <laughs> um, before class, you go through the reading, but you go through it quickly. You know, you don't, don't get bogged down with details. Right? You just try to get a sense for the whole picture. You might make some markings, say, I better come back here and, and figure this out. Then after class, hopefully fairly soon after class, if you wait more than a day, you're probably making a mistake. Um, spend at least 15, 20 minutes, if, if that's all the time you can manage, going over your notes, rereading some of the material. You know that your notes, which when you're writing them, seem perfectly clear to you. If you wait to go over them until a week before the exam, you have no idea what you wrote. You, you have no sense whatsoever what those notes mean. But if you go over them within a day or so, then you can fill in things and, and uh, uh, it's much more useful for you. By the way, I, I, I don't think you ought to take very many notes in class. I suggest you take very few notes, abbreviate them, as long as you go back to them and, and try to do something with them. Uh, what I have to say in class, it's not that big a deal uh, so that you know, it's, it's more the ethos of the thing which is important uh, in class. And, and the facts, as I say, you can always find the facts somewhere else. Um, so if you spend a lot of time taking notes, you know, you're going to miss my jokes and things like that. And uh, it's, it's not worth it. Um, now, you, there is a problem, of course. If, if you look at the... Um, tentative schedule, today we're supposed to cover Seleucid dominance and Hasmonean independence. In, in other words, you were supposed to have done three reading assignments before today. That means you're already, already hopelessly behind. <laughs> um, and that's, I mean, might as well get used to it because that's just life around here. Uh, but, but you will have, you know, this week uh, a little bit of time to catch up, I hope. And uh, it, it really is quite important that you try to um, uh, have read th through the uh, stuff there under Roman dominance for next Monday. If at all possible, try to do that. And I think it will really be of some help to you.
Any other questions? Yeah? So on the, on the um, tentative schedule here on the front page, should we push everything back? No, 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 no. We're already behind, already behind but that's okay. Uh, I will today uh, probably, f we have two hours, you see, so uh, I should at least finish the uh, section Seleucid Dominance, and, and maybe we'll get into the Hasmonean period, uh, but if we don't, we'll, we'll catch up. The, but even if we fall behind in class, you want to stick with the reading schedule, because then things start piling up, and, and it's just not a good idea. All right, let's get started then. Page three, orientation. <coughs> First thing that I want to do is to um, distinguish between so-called general introduction and special introduction. I don't know whether you um, are familiar with these terms, at least in the sense in which they are used in biblical studies. Um, this is a course in general introduction to the New Testament, uh, which makes it sound like perhaps it's a little vague, but that's not really the point. It has a very specific meaning in biblical studies. There are certain kinds of study and research that deals with the New Testament or with the Old Testament, because this applies to both uh, uh, the same way, uh, but it deals with the New Testament as a whole. Then there's another type of uh, discipline called special introduction that deals with the books of the New Testament individually. Now, normally, I think in most institutions and in seminaries and colleges and so on, if you have a, a course on, on New Testament introduction, probably most of the uh, course will be devoted to special introduction where you're dealing with, uh, say, you go to Matthew, who wrote this gospel, when was it written, what is its purpose, how is it outlined, what is its teaching. So you, you deal with each book at a time, and you try to get as much information as you can about uh, each of them. General introduction. Well, uh, you're going to get the feeling that we're just beating around the bush because we don't seem to be spending much time with the, you know, the, the text and the teaching of, of the Bible directly. We, we're spending quite a bit of time on what was going on before the New Testament was written and what happened after it was written in the uh, transmission of the manuscripts and the development of the canon and so on. And, and you do perhaps wonder, what, what are we doing here? Just seem to be avoiding the good stuff. But uh, there, there's a very important reason behind that kind of an approach because, as I mentioned before, uh, we are not used to dealing with the Bible uh, as a historical document. And it's something that we want to uh, pay attention to. The, the second little item in my outline there is grammatical historical exegesis. Maybe you've heard that term before. <coughs> grammatical historical um, that, that's uh, intended to be the opposite of uh, grim, hysterical exegesis. Um, grammatical 
is simply a way of saying, hey, you've got to pay attention to the original language. You, you cannot use English or some modern language into which the Bible has been translated and, and make that the total basis of your study. You, you, you need to realize that perhaps English in a certain context may have a little nuance and, and you may want to um, you know, take off on that one. But if you look at the Greek, it doesn't have that particular nuance or that particular association or whatever. So you, you have to pay attention to the linguistic element, the original linguistic element. And historical means, again, that uh, you want to do justice to the writing in the context in which it was written. Uh, all of us, whenever we read anything, <coughs> you know, there's a little kind of a grid that we have, we have developed over the years, which uh, is made up of all of the experiences that you have had, all of your knowledge, and it is your present context, you know, your present way of thinking. And so anything you read, you automatically try to fit into that grid. And it's perfectly all right. I mean, that's the only way that you can learn, actually. But when you begin to read a document that belongs into a different setting, uh, you've got to make a special effort to make sure that this grid that you have here is adjusted to take into account the differences. Um, Some time back, it's been quite a while back, actually, <coughs> in the mid-'70s, because the book was written in connection with the uh, 200th anniversary of uh, the Declaration of Independence, uh, this book by Gary Wills, Inventing America. This book is actually a commentary, a historical commentary, if you will, on the Declaration of Independence. And uh, I couldn't help but be uh, taken back by how easy it is for someone today to miss some important features about what the document actually say. The very opening phrase, you know, when in the course of human events, we say the word course, to us is a common word, and we don't think too much about it, but um, Wills points out that in the 18th century, the word course in philosophical uh, debate had a very clear-cut and specialized meaning, and, and Jefferson, of course, had a big library. He was quite... Uh, uh, up-to-date in some of this discussion, uh, used that little word course deliberately uh, to bring in certain uh, associations that otherwise uh, might have been missed. Well, who among us is really aware of that unless you make a special effort to figure it out? But think about this. Declaration of Independence, it's written in the same language that we speak now. It was written in this country. Uh, you know, basically the same culture, more or less, <coughs> and you can easily misunderstand it. When you look at the New Testament, you have a writing which was not written in our language, but in a completely different language, Greek. wasn't written in the 20th century, or even the, the 17th century, or the 13th century, but 20 centuries ago and was not produced in this kind of a cultural setting, but in, in the ancient Middle East. You can see, therefore, that there's a gap between the material on the one hand and our situation right now. Now, a lot of that gap is bridged 
by the fact that you can pick up an English translation, right? And all of a sudden, you, you can be in touch with that. And the, the reason you can do that is that there are some people out there who have spent a lot of time working through the historical and linguistic material to try to make this understandable uh, to you. But um, a special effort is needed. We, we can easily misunderstand. This is not the fault of the Bible, you understand. It's just part of our limitations and our ignorance and whatever. And so what we need to do is as much as possible to remedy our ignorance and, and try to make better sense of what the Bible is. Let me give you one example that um, I think is particularly interesting. <coughs> the, um, the parable of the prodigal son. It's a favorite uh, parable. All of us know it. We like it. It has so much power. Some years ago, uh, there was a, a scholar uh, who taught in Lebanon uh, most of his life, and he was very interested in the cultural setting of the Bible, and in particular of the parables. And he was very curious about, you know, how does a peasant in the Middle East respond to the parables of Jesus? So he decided that part of his research and investigation was going to be to just go around some of the outlying towns and, and even, you know, very, very small villages which haven't changed a great deal, you know, in, in these 20 centuries. <clears throat> and he would go around asking people about the parables. You know, what, how would you react if somebody did such and such? In connection with this parable, uh, he apparently um, talked to a number of people, and he would ask them a question like this one. What would you think if, uh, if there was a family in your town, a man had two sons, and the younger son asked his father, give me the part of my inheritance that uh, corresponds to me. And invariably, the response was a response of shock. You've got to be kidding. Nobody would do that because that's like asking your father to die. Now, see, I don't think most of us, even if, even if we think that that kind of a request is a little bit, uh, you know, less than tactful. <clears throat> it's not that big a deal nowadays. I mean, there are quite a few parents out there who, you know, in their old age decide, why do I keep this? You know, my children need some money to buy a house now, and so they, they will take some of the money that they have been uh, saving and, and give it to them. So it, it's not quite the same thing. But there's more to it. He found out <clears throat> that in situations like that, the older son, the eldest in the family, had the responsibility of reconciling the family because inevitably there would have been some kind of breach within the family at that point. And the elder son would be expected to be the, you know, the mediator or something like that to, to resolve the problem. But when you read the parable, you find out, and his father gave each of them their inheritance. Not only did the uh, elder son 
not do what he was supposed to, but he didn't protest when he got his part of the inheritance. That's a little detail, you see, that would probably escape us. And he gives a number of these <coughs> particularly striking uh, in the latter part of the uh, parable when we're told that the uh, father goes out running to meet the son. And I think when we read that, we're thinking primarily, well, he's so joyful to see his son, and undoubtedly that's part of the parable, but there's something going on there, he thinks. Uh, he says, you need to understand that um, in the Middle East, particularly in that kind of a setting, um, an older man is supposed always to act in a dignified way. And he gives an illustration of, a, of an evangelical church in Lebanon, apparently, where uh, they were looking for a pastor, and uh, one of the candidates came and made a very good impression. People liked his preaching and his personality and whatever. But the elders of the church <clears throat> decided not to call him to be the pastor. And they tried to find out, you know, why was that? And the answer they got was, listen to this, he walks too fast. Really, I mean, because he walked fast, he was perceived as not exuding the kind of dignified presence that he ought to. Now imagine an older man with long flowing robes running in the town and making a fool of himself. He was probably doing it, by the way, uh, to avoid uh, the, his son being hurt because he would be a pariah at that point. And, and as soon as the little kids in the town got wind that he was coming, they would take their stones and be ready to, to pelt him. So he was running to protect, protect him, and he humiliates himself for the sake of the son. And it turns out that the uh, element of, of, of God's humbling himself for his people seems to show up a couple of times in the parable. We see, these are, are the kinds of details that because we, we come at the Bible from a different cultural context, we're likely to miss. I'm not saying that we're going to totally misunderstand the parable. That's not the point. But uh, it is easy to uh, fail to grasp certain features about the text that may be relatively important. Well, you see, uh, that's why we spend some time uh, beating around the bush, if you will. Um, when you read, when you hear the, the, the name George Washington or Adolf Hitler or something, you immediately get all kinds of associations. The names of um, Judas Maccabee, Pompey, ought to do the same. Because if, if, if they do not evoke certain ideas and associations, you're going to miss also something of, of the kind of response that probably the Jesus' first hearers would have, uh, would have felt when they heard some of the things that Jesus was teaching. So that's why we spend a little bit of time on, on these kinds of things. And uh, I'm giving you here also a little bit of a sense of, of the structure of the curriculum. Those of you who were here for the luncheon last Tuesday, I uh, heard something like this from Dr. Poitras. <coughs> uh, but just so that you understand the, uh, the basic um, uh, setup, <coughs> you see the biblical language is there at the bottom as, as kind of a foundation for the rest of the, of the work. 
the, the courses in general introduction, New Testament now, Old Testament in the spring, provide this kind of historical background that I've been talking about and a few other things related to it. Uh, the course on hermeneutics builds on that. Uh, you will have that in the spring as well. Principles of interpretation. Uh, how do you go about uh, making sure that you're not missing certain important steps in uh, studying the Bible? Then, in our curriculum, <coughs> we have a series of courses that uh, combine things like special introduction, biblical theology, exegesis of particular passages. For example, uh, next fall you will be taking the course on the Gospels, then the course on, on Acts and Paul. In Old Testament you will be having the, the course on, on history, another one on poets, and so on. These are the courses that now deal with the text a little bit more directly, and it's worth waiting for. <clears throat> and then uh, we assume also that uh, your courses in, in systematic theology, which include church history and historical theology, also build on, on your knowledge of scripture and, of course, practical theology. How do you go about making use of what you have learned so that you can be a, 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 a good servant of the things that have been granted to you? <clears throat> now, you, you notice that I have arrows going up and down. This is kind of important. Um, you know, it's, it's impossible to have a curriculum that follows this system strictly as though, you know, the first year you do nothing but Greek and Hebrew. Second year you do nothing but general introduction. Third year you do nothing but special introduction. Fourth year you do nothing but systematic theology. Fifth year you do nothing but practical theology. <clears throat> it's not practical. It isn't going to work. Uh, but even if you could work it out chronologically, it's not a good idea because although there seems to be a logical relationship between these topics, the truth is that it's all kind of like a circle, you know. Um, you want to do, let me give you a, an illustration uh, which perhaps will help you figure out what I'm talking about. Let's say that you're studying the Epistle to the Galatians. According to this logical system, before you can understand Galatians, you've got to know as much as possible about the historical circumstances. Who wrote it? To whom? When? Why did he write this book? What was the purpose of it? What was the problem that, that he tried to be, that, that needed to be solved? The problem is, where do you get that information? Where do you get that information? Galatians. You've got to read the text and make sense of it to then try to figure out what may have been the setting. And then once you have a better idea of the setting, you go back to the text and you can understand a little bit better. And there's constantly this give and take. It's the same, the relationship between, say, the exegesis of a particular passage of scripture on the one hand and systematic theology on the other. You see, theoretically, what systematic theology does is after you've done all your exegesis of the Bible, then you start putting it all together to try to make sense of the whole of it. But the truth is that when you're doing exegesis of specific passages, you'd better have some kind of theological framework that helps you make sense of it. Otherwise, you're in real trouble. So uh, these things are not you know, cut and dry, obvious, black and white kinds of distinctions, but they, they are related in, in various ways. 
and uh, I think it, it can be of real help to you as you go through your program here uh, to, uh, to learn to do it that way as well. Uh, You've got to be flexible and, and, and uh, let things uh, influence you in a variety of ways, and uh, I think it will be much more profitable as you move along. <coughs> okay, any questions on, um, on these introductory matters? Before the bell rings, uh, we still have a second hour, but the, before the bell rings, let me just uh, say a few things about the additional bibliography on page four. <clears throat> uh, this book by Loza, which is your, your main source for information, is now a little bit dated. And for the past several years, I go through an existential crisis around May, that's when the bookstore starts asking me, what's, what's your textbook for, for this coming fall? And there's one side of me that says, I really ought to get a book that is more up-to-date. But it's difficult to find a book that, he, that is approximately this size. Like, I don't want anything much bigger than this. Uh, and that is clear. Uh, there are some very fine books out there which unfortunately assume that you had a classics major in college. And so all these Roman and Greek names are you know, at your fingertips all the time. And, uh, and it's a little bit of, uh, of a struggle. <clears throat> so I, I keep sticking to this book. But uh, I also want to encourage you as much as possible uh, whether in, in the context of this course or uh, wherever, to try to supplement this reading. And, and that's part of the reason why I have this bibliography. Let me tell you, uh, make a couple of comments about them. <clears throat> the book by F.F. F. Bruce, New Testament History, is uh, an unusually fine uh, historical uh, work. It deals not only with the background material, but also with the actual history taking place in the New Testament. Uh, I was very privileged to have Professor Bruce as my doctoral supervisor in, in the University of Manchester <coughs> some years ago. <coughs> and um, he had truly an encyclopedic <coughs> mind. In fact, um, the very first meeting of the uh, doctoral seminar in which the different students were supposed to give papers uh, was devoted to Luke Acts. And the first, uh, that, that whole term was devoted to Luke Acts. And the first meeting, somebody had been asked to uh, present a paper on the historical background to the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. This person didn't show up. And the secretary, who was a student, <clears throat> was really very upset about that. And Professor Bruce said, look, since I know something about this, maybe I could say something about the, um, the background to Luke-Acts. And he proceeded to give a one-and-a-half-hour you know, encyclopedia article with every name and date that you can imagine. <clears throat> and it was quite astonishing. And uh, his, his ability to synthesize and to write clearly uh, really comes through in this book. Uh, the work by uh, Davies and Finkelstein is, is much more extensive. It isn't even finished yet. Uh, and that's for more specialized work. The book by Ferguson is the one that I really want to emphasize. I came this close from adopting it uh, this year as the main textbook. <clears throat> it's two or three times bigger than this one. 
I don't think it's as interesting. And um, nevertheless, it is probably the best one volume synthesis of material nowadays. And I strongly encourage you that you get a copy of this book and read it at your leisure or whatever, uh, because you can get a lot of, of excellent information in connection with it. The work by uh, Grabe is also more uh, detailed, is uh, for more advanced work, but, but very fine. Um, and the last item I should mention is the, the very last item there by Schur, which is a classic work. It is probably the, the most important reference work on this whole topic of you know, the, the history of Judaism in New Testament times, the uh, institutions of Judaism, the culture, and so on. And um, I keep these things in, uh, in the back burner and uh, try to use them from time to time. Okay, let's take a little break. And uh, we'll go on to the second part of the uh, lecture.